Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Highway Community Podcast for Sunday, July 3rd, 2022. We're so glad that you could join us today. And one of the things that we value here at the Highway Community, uh, in large part, thanks to the presence and influence of our resident gerontologist, Marguerite DeLang, is personal storytelling. We believe that the personal stories that God has written and is continuing to write in our lives are a tremendous gift. And when we rehearse those stories, we know ourselves, we allow ourselves to be known to others, and even more significantly, we know God and can see his ongoing work of transformation through our stories. And so this summer, interspersed among our Eyes to See teaching series, some of the staff will be sharing from our stories. And specifically, we're going to share the story of how God called us into ministry, how we came to be serving here at the Highway Community, as well as a reflection of something that God has shown us or is showing us along the way as we have served him. And so this morning, I'm going to share the story of how God moved me into ministry. And I'm going to start with a confession, and that is that I never wanted to be a pastor. I never wanted to be a pastor. Pastoral ministry was never something that I dreamed about or aspired to or studied for. In fact, as a high school student, uh, watching the way that the church that I grew up in churned through youth pastors uh, was anything but an attractive brochure for careers in vocational ministry. So I was not interested. With that said, uh, as I entered into my senior year of high school at Homestead, I had no idea what I wanted to study in college. And in the fall semester, I took British literature, I read Macbeth, and just really fell in love with Shakespeare. And really, everything else in that class too, from Beowulf to Chaucer to Alexander Pope to John Keats, James Joyce, not so much. But I liked that British literature class so much that I decided to apply to college as an English major and wound up attending UC Davis. And when I arrived, I was eager to dig in and started taking as many Renaissance literature classes as I could. And in my second quarter during freshman year, based on some encouragement from a professor, I set my eyes on graduate school. And my ultimate goal was to teach Renaissance literature at the college letter level. And so I did everything that I could do to prepare myself. I minored in Latin and took nearly three years of Italian in order to be proficient in two languages from the period. I did independent studies, both in English and in Latin. I helped my advisor develop a graduate course on Ben Jonson, who was a contemporary of Shakespeare, which was inspired by an independent study that he did with me. I wrote a senior thesis on Ben Johnson's epigrams. I even spent a spring break helping my advisor host a conference on the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492. I literally stood at the gate at the Sacramento airport holding a sign that said expulsion conference while waiting for scholars to deplane. I mean, if there were only cell phones to capture the look that I got holding that sign. And so... After all of that, when it came time to apply to graduate school, I was ready. I applied to 10 schools, 
Eight of those were top programs in the country, and then two were, were backup schools or, or safety nets. And I had high hopes. Lynn and I had just gotten married, and we were anticipating being in Davis for a year and then being off on an adventure the year after that. But then the rejection letters started rolling in. I got one, and then a second rejection, and then a third uh, which which started to concern me because, as they say, two is a coincidence and three is a trend. Then I got a fourth rejection and then a fifth, followed by a sixth and then a seventh and then an eighth. And then finally, after a lot of heartache and despair and angst, letter number nine was an acceptance letter to one of my backup schools, uh, the University of Arizona. I got that letter on a Sunday, and on Tuesday, I was in the car on my way to Tempe. But my visit to the campus and the conversations with the professors in my field and the conversations with current graduate students all left me with the distinct sense that it was not a fit. And, and in a broader sense, it solidified for me all the things that I had been feeling about the process as those rejection letters were streaming in which, you know, to borrow a line from Hamlet, was that something was rotten in the state of Denmark when it came to this entire process. I eventually received an admission offer from the final school as well, but after consulting with my advisor, I decided that it was best just to decline altogether and take a year off, reconstruct the list of schools, and reapply for the following year. Now, that plan made a lot of sense, minus the fact that I had absolutely no idea what I was gonna do for a year. I literally had not even considered doing anything else besides going to graduate school. And I was newly married and feeling the responsibility of that too, as the plans we had were evaporating and graduation for me was approaching. So I started to look for work, but at the time there was not an abundance of jobs available for English majors. Most of what I found were sales jobs that were highly based on commission. And then there was also the consider the complication of, of interviewing for a job, knowing that I was only planning to stay for a year, uh, which would not make me a very attractive candidate. Well, after a couple of months passed, I happened to run into an acquaintance from the dorms who had been taking a year off while waiting to be accepted to veterinary school. He had spent his year off teaching English at a private Catholic high school in the East Bay. And since he had been accepted to veterinary school, he was going to be leaving his job. And not only that, his cousin was the department chair and in charge of the hiring. So he passed along the contact information, and I put together a cover letter and a resume and dropped it in the mail at the campus post office. When I returned to our apartment that same afternoon... My wife, Lynn, told me that I had a phone message from our home church. Now, as an aside, during my college summers, I worked two summers for a software company in Mountain View, one summer for a consulting company in Pleasanton, and then my last summer before graduation, which was also the summer that Lynn and I were married, I was an intern at our home church, where I coordinated the college ministry, which involved leading worship, organizing and leading activities, 
and coordinating the group's Sunday teaching with lay staff and wrote children's Sunday school curriculum. And I have to say I was largely attracted to that job because of the fact that it was very part-time that summer, which worked really well because of the wedding. And as for the bad taste I had about working at a church, as I left that job that summer actually to return to Davis, I did not have the same feeling that I'd had in previous summers, where I was just chomping at the bit to get back to school. I don't recall, by the way, thinking anything more of this at the time. It was just something that I noticed as I said my goodbyes and headed back for school. So I returned the pastor's call. Uh, He had been my supervisor, incidentally, the previous summer, and he unexpectedly offered me a job. See, young people my age were not coming back to church after college, and, and the church was starting and needed someone to lead a group for people in their 20s. And so they were asking me to lead that group, and I would also lead the college ministry. And I was so completely surprised by this. I did not see it coming. Uh, the salary was, was not based on commissions, so that was good. And he told me that I'd be completely free to leave after a year if I wanted to pursue graduate school. You know, everything that happened uh, and, and how everything happened, the timing, the circumstances, uh, my own reckoning with the whole graduate school application failure, it felt like God was making the path straight for me in a way that was just undeniable. And, and that one-year escape clause, you know, combined with the experience I'd had the summer before, provided enough relief about the misgivings that I'd had about vocational ministry to give it a shot. And so on July 1st, 1993, I started. And one of the first things that happened was that I met Dean Smith. Dean had joined the staff at the church right as I was leaving for Davis. And the church at the time was reasonably large somewhere around 1,200 people, and the staff was large as well. And so I had not really rubbed shoulders much with Dean the previous summer while I was an intern. Now, at the time that I was starting the Young Adults Group, which was called 2020, Dean was leading a group of adults who were largely in their 30s and 40s. And he had been planning a day-long conference where there would be speakers on various topics and a band and a lunch. And he asked me to teach a workshop that he was entitling Boomers, Busters, and Beyond. And the idea was to look at the characteristics of the baby boomers, which was a generation of Americans born between 1946 and 1964. Uh, and, And the new generation that was beginning to emerge comprised of people born between 1965 and 81, and consider the implications of how to relate to God based on the values embedded in each generation. And I remember Dean handed me a huge file folder of articles and information about the baby boomers, which was his generation. And then he said, I don't know anything about your generation, so you'll have to figure that out. And so I started doing research on the generation that would eventually be dubbed Generation X, based on the title of Douglas Copeland's book, uh, which would also later be recognized as the first generation of postmodern times. And as I began to read articles and learn about the generation that I was a part of, there were several things that stood out. One was that Generation X were the children of divorce. 
with 50% of the generation experiencing a divorce in their home. This, in part, led to the generation being known as latchkey kids, because kids would come home from school and essentially supervise themselves, largely by watching TV, which is why the generation was alternately called the MTV generation. Something else about Generation X Uh, due to a difficult job market, is that Generation X lived with their parents after college at an unprecedented rate. And there were projections at the time that the generation would not do as well as their parents, financially speaking, all of which contributed to a sense of hopelessness as the generation was beginning to emerge from college and enter into the workforce. And then the other thing that I discovered through my research was that Generation X was the first generation in America raised without religion. And as I did that research, and as I I saw those things and more named, I had one of those moments where I really saw my friends. You know, I saw the friends that I'd grown up with, my friends and neighbors from, from college, the people who were my age that were coming to to the 2020 group in those early days, I saw all of them, and I also saw the need. The need for God, the need for community and a sense of family, and and really the need for hope. And it was ultimately through the process of researching for that workshop that I discovered my calling. It was through the process of researching for that workshop that I felt like God was inviting me to create a context for my generation to connect with them. And I had a tremendous amount of conviction for that. And Dean really shared that same heartbeat. And so we began to talk about what it might look like to have a worship service that was oriented for the MTV generation. Because one of the things that I was discovering as I was leading the young adult group, not surprisingly, was that people liked that group a lot but they were not connecting with the church worship service. You know, as I've mentioned, my my home church was pretty traditional. And so the Sunday service featured a choir, an orchestra, and a blend of hymns and choruses. And the music was outstanding. I mean, the church was was really well known for it, but it was just not connecting culturally with the younger audience at the time. And so Dean and I started working on developing a prototype of a worship service that would be more culturally relevant, both in terms of music, but also media too. And a service that would utilize video, both from the broader culture as well as original productions to help communicate and engage. We traveled to Los Angeles for a weekend to visit some churches that were trying to do something similar. And then after we returned, we scheduled a vision and planning retreat in Capitola. And it was there, you know, sometime in around March of 1994, that we landed on the name Highway, which comes from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 8 through 10, as well as four core values that would guide the ministry, truth, authenticity, community, and hope. Isaiah chapter 35 is a vision of hope and deliverance for the exiled people of Israel. It's a vision of God's presence returning to transform the desert and lead his people back to Zion. And in the midst of all of that, 
Isaiah chapter 35, verse 8 says, And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk in that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord had rescued, has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now, Isaiah's image of the highway implies a sense of direction. It implies a sense of protection. Right? It's literally a highway in the sense that it's pictured as raised up off the ground, right? providing safety from the beasts lurking below. And it's a really lovely metaphor for the journey that we are on as followers of Jesus. And a lovely metaphor for how we are all at different places along the highway. And sometimes even off of it altogether. But it's nevertheless a journey of hope that ultimately culminates with the everlasting joy of God's eternal presence. And so Highway became the name. And in February of 1995, Highway started as an alternative worship service, meeting on Friday nights. I served as the worship leader, believe it or not, by the grace of God, since I had just learned to play guitar a few years before, uh, had never played in a band before, or even with a drummer, uh, and didn't know anything about music. Two and a half years later, Highway was added as a third worship service on Sunday mornings. And despite the fact that it met at 8.30 in the morning, it became the largest of the church's worship services. Later, in 1998, First Baptist would undergo a senior leadership change that would ultimately result in Highway being sent out as a church plant on Easter Sunday of 2000 at the Palo Alto High School, which is another story entirely. When we planted the church, I led worship and the small group ministry and set up and tear down and, and lots and lots and lots of other things in what I like to call the pioneering years of Highway. And then in 2006, after we merged with Community Bible Church, I transitioned away from leading worship to teaching. And in 2007, my family moved to this campus where I began to serve as the campus pastor. And funny enough, uh, this past Friday actually marked the day that I began that one-year assignment 29 years ago. So a couple of years after planting the highway community, somewhere around 2002, I got something in the mail from the UC Davis English Department. And they were hosting a Shakespeare conference. And I noticed that one of the people who was presenting pa a paper was a teaching assistant that I had had many, many times for various Renaissance literature classes and, and, and someone who I'd come to know well as a result. And I noticed from the brochure that this person was now a professor at a small liberal arts college in Montana. And so I looked him up on the school website, and wrote him an email, just congratulating him on finishing his PhD and telling him that I had seen that he was presenting at the conference. I also told him that I never ended up going to graduate school, but instead had recently planted a church 
and that Lynn and I had two kids uh, and I wished him well. And it had been it had been nearly 10 years since I'd seen this person. Well, a day or so later, I received a reply. And this person, you know, completely unsolicited, went on to tell me that it was a great decision that I had made not to go to graduate school. He said it was really hard to find jobs like the ones that our professors had at Davis. The pay was terrible. His students were totally unmotivated to learn. And, uh, and he had come to cope with all of this by cultivating an interest in travel literature that enabled him to spend time in Southeast Asia, which was the thing that was keeping him stimulated and motivated. And, you know, that, that email that I received was a really unexpected gift. Because in those early years of ministry, I often wondered what it might have been like had I reapplied and gone to graduate school. And this message not only gave me a glimpse into that world, but it was also a confirmation that I was not missing anything, uh, but instead, through God's grace and provision, was exactly where he wanted me to be. And so it was, it was a tremendous gift of closure. Last Sunday, uh, we said farewell to a couple of families who were moving out of the area this past week. Uh, the Huangs, who have been part of Highway since 2007, and the Puleos, who have been a part of Highway since 2019. And you know, as I think back over the last 29 years of ministry, uh, that is something that has been a real theme, right? It's just a part of life and ministry because of the transient nature of the Bay Area. Right? The Bay Area is more often home for people for a season as opposed to being a forever home for a lot of different reasons. In fact, we figure that the average time that someone is here at the highway community is about four years. But the leaving has felt even more acute during the pandemic. You know, ordinarily, having people leave has been counterbalanced by having people come. But COVID really changed that. You know, meeting online made it difficult for new people to come and be a part of the community. And it's felt like the traffic has been more than more one way. Uh, and that, combined with just all of the changes that we've endured as a community, has been hard. So uh, our, our daughter, Shelby, who is the youngest of our four kids, just finished her senior year in high school. And she was trying to decide where to go to school. Back in April, she and I flew down to San Diego for the day to tour Point Loma Nazarene University in San Diego State. And we arrived at Point Loma, and took the campus tour, which was a great experience. And when the tour was over, we were standing outside the dining hall and out came Trevor Tong, who grew up here at Highway and is now a student at Point Loma. Trevor knew that we were going to be on campus that day, but we did not have any specific plans to see one another. He's currently a kinesiology major, which is a major Shelby was considering, and was just gushing with enthusiasm over how great the program is and how much he and his classmates love the kinesiology professors. And as he was talking, a woman overheard him evangelizing the kinesiology department and stopped to introduce herself. Turns out that she was the kinesiology department admin and she heartily plus one everything that Trevor said uh, and went on to invite Shelby and I down to the office for a visit. Well, after she went on her way, Trevor took us down there 
He introduced us to one of his professors who was wonderfully nice. And then we had a really great spontaneous visit with the department admin. When we left, uh, we went back up to the main campus walkway and we decided to, to make our way to the car so we go get some lunch before the San Diego State tour. And as we were walking along, I heard my name called. And I looked to my right, and at a table, there was someone who I had not seen in years. His name is Sean, and he attended Highway a number of years back, probably for a year and a half or so. He was in between jobs at the time, as I remember, and he was living with his parents while he was trying to figure things out. We had coffee a few times as he was processing things, and, and he volunteered uh, at Vacation Bible School that summer that he was here. Eventually, uh, he moved to Arizona to be closer to a woman who he was interested in dating. And so here's Sean now, after all these years, sitting with a baby in a carrier next to him. Uh, he, he wound up marrying the woman in Arizona, and, and this was their daughter. So he was sitting with his daughter and a couple of Point Loma students that he knew from Arizona. So we started catching up, and it turns out that Sean got his bachelor's degree in kinesiology from San Diego State and a master's in kinesiology from Point Loma, and has been teaching high school PE for the last 10 years. And even more interestingly and amazingly, his wife is a professor at Point Loma in guess what department? Kinesiology. They live right near the campus. Uh, they love being available for students who are away from home. And it was this incredibly warm and hospitable experience, both for Shelby and for me. Now, that interaction was such a gift on a number of levels. But it reminded me, in the midst of all of the change and all of the leaving, of a very simple and important truth. And that is that the relationships that we build as followers of Jesus are eternal. There is an eternal essence to the relationships that we build in the body of Christ. And they endure beyond physical proximity. The pandemic has really highlighted the value of community and, and what a gift our relationships with one another truly are. And so, you know, as we gather together again, regardless of, of how long you've been here or how long you may think you'll be here, as we gather together again, I want to encourage you to make the most of cultivating relationships here at Highway, to make the most of cultivating relationships within the body of Christ. You know, to, to borrow the words from the prophet Jeremiah, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Because we really never know how God will use the investments that we make in one another. And we never know how or where those connections might resurface. Because while we may not necessarily be in proximity to one another, what we're building here with God and with one another is eternal. And that is truly a joy of serving in ministry and has been for me for the last 29 years. We are a part of God's family forever. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your faithfulness. Thank you for your 
relentless love, for the way that you always pursue us. And God, we thank you really for the gift that you have given us of one another, for the gift that you give us as the body of Christ to build relationships, to encourage one another, to hold one another up, and to walk together as we follow Jesus. And we thank you, God, for all of the ways that you have been showing us over these past couple of years, the beauty of that and the value of it. Would you give us courage to press in, courage to develop roots, courage to uh, to know others and to be known ourselves, God, so that we might be making eternal investments that uh, that may have returns that are unexpected and beautiful beyond our imagination. We love you, Father. We thank you for the stories that you have written in our writing in our lives. Would you make us aware of the ways that you are moving and working and the things that you are doing in our midst? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.